This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, For joining us once again. This is Evidence Faith, radio voice of Ashio Christi, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true, and where we help Christians become thinkers, and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be on the problem of suffering. What does Christianity have to say about the problem of suffering? Does it mean that God does not exist, or is there more to it than that? Please check out our website at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where you can find archived shows, and you can also listen to podcasts on iTunes. Also check out the Ratio Christi website at ratiochristi.org. We are also, we have four other stations that you can find us on. Right now, you're, you may be listening to us on WIBG out of Ocean City. That's our flagship station. But you can also hear us on KXKS Albuquerque, New Mexico, WYYC York, PA, KLNG Omaha, Nebraska, or KWDF Alexandria, Louisiana. So if you do listen to us on one of those shows and you'd like to email us, then please include the call letters of the station you listen to us at, and you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, Kirk, I have a quote of the day or quote of the week for us. This comes from Apologetics 315, and it is a quote from apologist Greg Kokel, who has his own radio show that I love to listen to because it's a great radio show. And he says... So let's set the record straight. Faith is not the opposite of reason. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And reason is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of reason is irrationality. Do some Christians have irrational faith? Sure. Do some skeptics have unreasonable unbelief? You bet. It works both ways. Ooh, so I that like that. from Greg Kokel. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that nice? Uh huh. <laughs> then we had an email. This from, let's see, it says from Sonny. So Sonny says, Hi, Keith. I'm a French Canadian, so sorry for my bad English, although I didn't see any bad English, but that's probably because my English is bad too. <laughs> he says, I'm a regular listener to your show, and I want to tell you that I appreciate it a lot. It helps me a lot as a youth pastor. I also have a question for you. I would like to teach apologetics at my church, and I'm anticipating biblical objections some could have. Okay, that really piqued my interest because I couldn't imagine what biblical objections there could be. But he says, for instance, does 1 Peter 3.15 contradict Luke 21.13-15, where Jesus says, I will lead to an Oh, I'm sorry. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. 
And then he says, see also Luke 12, 11 through 12. Is the difference between the two like one is formal law court and the other informal settings, or one is about the gospel and the other about yourself? I know these verses remind us the part of God in apologetics, which is so important, but it seems to undercut our part in our preparation. How do you make sense of these biblical statements? So he's actually saying it sounds on the surface like these verses are contradicting the other verse, which says, um, be prepared to make a defense against anyone that, you know, raises questions. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And especially in this particular language or, or um, version, English version. So, you know, I, I looked up some other English versions and there's some that are not quite this uh, seemingly contradictory. So it may be just a this this particular version. Do you know what version he got that from? No, I don't. And I wasn't able to find it. The ones I looked at it, they were different. So, so I think that's important. But also, both of these verses seem to be talking about the end times, right? So uh, Jesus is talking about what to, how to prepare when things go wrong. So I think, you know, really, if you, no matter which version I looked at it, basically the gist of it was, you know, you're going to be in a tough situation, but don't worry, I'll be with you. Right. And, you know, I don't think what he was trying to say was, don't bother learning why people should believe, right? That doesn't seem to be the gist of the verses. And, you know, we have to remember that Jesus was talking to the eyewitnesses at this point. So it's not like he had to convince them that they ought to study up. Right. Right. I mean, you know, they had been studying up for the past three years. So they already knew all the evidence of why they should believe in Jesus. So, and so there, I think if you put these verses with the other verses that come from First uh, Peter and other places, I think basically what the message is, is always be ready to give an answer to anyone. And when things get really hard, don't worry, I'm going to be there to help you. I, right. I think that's what it means. So, so that's I, my answer to Sonny. I can kind of understand why Jesus might say to, you know, the first uh, Christians, you know, don't be worried about coming up with a defense because their defense was, well, Jesus rose from the dead and we saw him. I mean, yeah. that was all the defense they needed at the time. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So so they didn't have to be theological scholars or anything. They could just say, look, he came back from the dead and we saw him do it. <laughs> right. That's right. And also they lived in a time when you know, everybody believed in the existence of God. It's not like you had to present, you know, five different arguments why God existed. Right. So uh, the way we do now. We're more sophisticated today. <laughs> well, things have just gotten harder. So and I think that's what Jesus was talking about. In the end times, things are going to get really tough. Yeah, right. So, um, so we not only need to be prepared, but we also need to trust him that he's going to help us, uh, you know, and help us with what needs to be said at the right time. Right. So I wanted to have for today a little bit of information about a conference that I went to. It was the Westminster Conference on Science and Faith. It was in Philadelphia on April 14th, but we don't have that today, so I'll try and prepare for that for a future time. Some really interesting uh, scientific arguments for Christianity that were presented by some PhD scholars, uh, biologists, and, and others. So really exciting news. Also, I should mention that I just recently did a talk at Stockton College called 10 Myths About Christianity, and Kevin Harold's in studio with us today because he's going to be our guest today, and Kevin was there. He helped to record it, so we recorded that, and welcome to the show today, Kevin. Well, thank you. Good afternoon. It's always good to have you here. 
but Kevin helped record that. So he gave me the file and I've, it, it ran, a, the talk ran a little long, about an hour and seven minutes or so, even, and that's before questions. So I had to, I have to chop it down a little bit so it'll fit into the talk, the um, radio show, but maybe next week or the week after we'll have that ready. Yeah, sounds interesting. Well, Kevin, now that we've brought you into the picture, Kevin is going to be our guest today, and he's going to be talking about suffering, you know, just exactly how that fits into the Christian paradigm. In Christianity, why should there be any suffering? I mean, aren't we God's pets? Doesn't he want to take care of us? So that's what we're going to be looking at. So, so Kevin, welcome to Evidence for Faith once again. Thank you. You have to be careful how you say that, Keith, that you say, well, we're going to talk about suffering today, and now here's Kevin Harold. <laughs> As if there's That's a connection. Right. Suffering to listen to Kevin? He, he is busting up. He's being very quiet about that, and he's shaking uh, his fist at you. But... Okay. <laughs> well, I was just thinking that. As a pilot, sometimes my passengers think they're suffering, so uh, they're about a little inside. Especially when you hit an ear pocket, right? I was thinking more like when I hit the runway. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the landing gear comes up into the passenger compartment. <laughs> well, never not that bad. It just feels that way sometimes. <laughs> All right, Kevin, tell us about suffering. What is the, why should Christians care about the issue of suffering or why should non-christian i mean we have a lot of non-christians that listen to the radio show well that's important point the last part um, many times the question of god and the existence of evil or suffering pain that often is an intense conversation with uh, non-christians and sometimes christians and uh be my goal to cover that let me say from the first front because the question of God and the existence of evil, it can't just solely be an intellectual exercise. I say that because many times when you address this question, there's a feeling like there are what I call two sides of the fence, where it seems like the intellectual answers of the existence of God and the existence of evil, they're on one side of the fence. And then sometimes the person who's undergoing great injustice or pain or suffering, they're on the other side. So I want to acknowledge that sooner or later, this can be a very emotional, very intense subject. But I kind of equate it to the word picture uh, like a snarling tiger. If there's a snarling tiger in between you and the door, it's something that must be dealt with. You can't ignore that tiger, and thus you can't ignore the question of evil when you seek to talk about the existence of God. So my point is that this is not something that is simply just going to go away with a simple answer. Many times, speaking of Christians and non-Christians, uh, defenders of Christianity, skeptics of Christianity. There are several questions that come up. And um, I think if you're listening, you will either thought of these yourself or heard these yourself or want to raise these yourself and want to, how can there be a good God and yet so much evil? Or maybe a little more specifically to put it, how can you claim that your Christian God is the one true God when Christians like those in the Crusades or Christians like Hitler have caused so much suffering? And I would call that is the accusation. Yeah, but, let's let's be clear that that's an accusation because we don't want to get give people the wrong idea that we think that 
Hitler was a, a Christian. We don't, but you do hear that. I mean, we had a student in Sunday school class who's a senior in high school, and she said that her teacher is teaching her class that uh, Hitler was a Christian and, you know, and all about the Holocaust and things like that, and, and basically blaming it on Christianity, or at least saying that there was no God because of this issue of suffering and pain, and how could there be a God if there if something like the Holocaust happened? And you very well just covered several main points about this whole question, and we are going to seek to break down those points to address them and to include uh, the question of whether Hitler was a Christian. And but like so, you had those two questions asked. Basically, how can there be evil and God? But yet also, it can be personal. When you're standing over the coffin of, let's say, your child, I think this shows that sooner or later it's going to be a personal thing in your life. Mm. Yeah, it can be. I, I know myself, we went to a church where it was a pastor who had lost his uh, a young child. Uh, and it can be very difficult and very tough to reconcile with what we think sometimes being a faithful follower of God is, that it ought to always be uh, happy times. Well, that's a universal problem. That's a universal problem, too, the problem of death, because we all experience that. We either experience, you know, the premature death of a child or the death of our parents or the death of a pet or the death of a friend, or we're all touched by that in some way or another. And like Kevin said, that's the snarling tiger that you can't avoid. Sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, it reminds me of something that N.T. Wright said. He said that, we ignore suffering when it doesn't hit us in the face. And we are surprised by suffering when it does. Hmm. Maybe I could even, little liberty, say that instead of the word surprise, maybe overwhelmed by suffering when it hits us. But to talk about suffering, I think it's important, first of all, to think about mystery versus problem. Because when you talk about evil and suffering and the existence of God, uh, there's a mystical aspect. Uh, I don't mean a uh, New Age type, but if I would define a mystery as a problem that will sooner or later wrap around us and involve us, that it becomes personal, I think that goes a long way as of trying to understand evil mm -hmm. in the sense that figuring out how to get to Mars is a problem. Falling in love and trying to explain it. Now that's a mystery. <laughs> Kevin, let me just interrupt to remind people if they're just joining us that you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have with us apologist Kevin Harold, who is talking about the problem of suffering. So, Kevin, you're, you say that suffering is, in a sense, a mystery. Now, again, this is something I don't want. Uh, non-Christians to make the mistake of, well, if Christians are saying that suffering is a mystery, then what they're really saying is they don't have the answers. And so it's obvious that Christianity is not true because to them, the issue of suffering is just as mysterious as it is to the non-Christians. Is that what you mean by it's a mystery? Oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking more, if I can borrow an aspect of science, many times in the history of science, things looked like a mystery. But when the scientists spent effort and time and the community of scientists uh, sought to unravel the mystery, mm -hmm. then they began to understand it better. So 
I wish to use the metaphor of mystery to say that uh, just talking uh, simple about evil and suffering can't be done. Right. And why would that be? Well, because it's not that I think that the question of God and evil is unexplainable, but that it involves three aspects of suffering. And I'll just start with those three aspects. And I think when I explain them, I think it'll help us to understand how we can even begin to crack the door on this question. And the first aspect was called the reality of suffering, the reality of it. I don't think I have to explain this too much. If we've been alive any amount of time on this earth, watching even just the news, or in my case, going to many different lands and seeing it in person, how can you even begin to deny the reality, the intensity of suffering? Secondly, the universality of suffering, in the sense that the reality of suffering cuts across all classes, all borders. It does not spare the rich and the privileged. And from the reality of suffering, the universality of suffering, you have the complexity of suffering. And as I said earlier, you can't just try to explain this away with a real simple answer. So as we start to get into this rather long introduction, I know, we're going to basically talk about two important aspects that are critical for this question, and that is the intellectual approach, and that's where we talk about the hows and the whys, the nuts and bolts, the existence of God and evil, but also, importantly, address the emotional approach aspect of it. Like I said, when you personally suffer great pain. Well, Kevin, one of the issues that comes up all the time is how do different uh, religions handle uh, this issue of suffering. So we don't want to just look at, you know, okay, Christianity is the pre predominant religion, and it doesn't seem to have an answer to me for why uh, my child died, and, and then just leave it at that. Therefore, uh, atheism must be true. So can you talk a, a little bit about that as to, you know, really the, the Christian answer is just one among many answers. So it could be that while the Christian answer isn't entirely satisfying to someone who is suffering. Could it be that it's maybe a better answer than uh, what the other options are? I think that was well put. Um, so I'm just going to pick three. I'm not going to try and cover all the worldviews. And the first one we could pick of why bad things happen to us. How do we answer that question? First one would maybe be from pantheism, which denies the existence of good and evil. Or to a pantheist, since all is God and God is all, good and evil are merely an illusion because everything is the same. You can't differentiate. I mean, if you try to differentiate, that's just an illusion. Thus, good and evil are just an illusion. Hmm. Yeah, but, not a terribly satisfying uh, uh, answer to people that are suffering. I guess, I guess it's a way of ignoring the problem. Well, it, it, it comes across mystical. And sometimes mystical seems to explain by not explaining because it's mystical. Mm. But I would say to you, if you have personally experienced the reality, the universality, and the complexity of suffering, does that work for you? Will you buy that explanation? Yeah, I don't. I don't know personally. It doesn't doesn't wash for me terribly well. I think even people that would claim to believe in this, when something bad happens to them, I think suddenly their belief would go out the window. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah that, I, I don't know. Pantheism can have a pretty anesthetizing effect on thought, though. Um, you know, when you don't believe there is any right or wrong, good or evil, you know, it, it, there's almost, uh, it's, a, it's a way of not thinking about things. So if you have suffering in your life, if you think about it, then of course you're going to say, you know, I realize that this is really truly evil. But if you're used to anesthetizing your mind, to not to think about things, not to think about right or wrong, good or evil, and just to, you know, react, then, you know, you're going to think, you know, you're not going to think. That's the point. You're not Well, that's think. almost the same thing as being on drugs all the time or being drunk all the time. You don't have to deal with suffering then either. But that doesn't mean it isn't still there. <laughs> no, but that's a, lo a reason why a lot of people do drugs and alcohol, because it, it, for its anesthetizing effect. I'm sure they do. Well, no, the second way of dealing with this a worldview that tries to answer why bad things happen. This could come from the philosophical naturalism. And in philosophical naturalism, we remember that there's no room allowed for the supernatural. Yeah, only, tell people what that is. That's where we only allow natural explanations or to... So atheism, basically. Right. Say that only scientific reasons are allowed in. And that's actually a false qualifier in the sense that we as Christians wholeheartedly believe in science. But the mantra would be that only scientific reasons are allowed in. So everything may only be explained by natural causes. Everything, no matter how good or bad it seems, may only be considered to come from random and impersonal forces. There's no intentionality to suffering. It just happens. So even though there is a philosophical problem with saying on the one hand that there is no God, there's no supernatural, but at the same time accusing God of being evil, I would say at the risk of sounding like I'm mocking and I don't mean to be, does this philosophical naturalism, does it comfort you? Does it make you feel better? Does it help you deal with the intense suffering that you may be going through in this moment? Uh, they told us when I went through uh, survival training in the Air Force, the thing was just suck it up, just suck it up. <laughs> well, that didn't make me feel very uh, good at the moment. <laughs> now, so Kevin, you're talking about the atheist view that if there is suffering, then there is no God? Or are you talking about that in the atheist viewpoint, if you recognize suffering, it's just a, a fact of the universe and you just have to get used to it. That's the way things are. Actually, both. Uh, if time allows, we'll go a little bit into that because both accusations, <clears throat> if I may use that word, are leveled often in this question of God and the existence of evil. Uh, the third option, not inclusive, but the third option, the first being pantheism, the second being philosophical naturalism, which you could have evolution in there. The third option, of course, would be theism. And I like this option because, to me, it provides the best coherent and effective explanation to why we not only address the intellectual aspect of suffering, but the emotional aspect as well. So you have three worldviews trying to explain the question of why bad things happen. Well, well, let's get more into the atheistic viewpoint then. You know, they, they claim that God doesn't exist. How do they handle issues of pain and suffering? Okay, I call this philosophical naturalism's catch-22. 
once again saying that God does not exist. This is the assertion by naturalism. All we see is all that there is. Or to be a little more technically correct, all that we can empirically verify through scientific testing is all that there is. Thus, which would lead to objective moral values do not exist because there is no God. And we might ask, well, what is objective moral values? Well, everyone knows what objective moral values is. Well, I love to define things because often that helps us to understand where everyone is coming from. And I like what uh, Dr. William Lane Craig defined objective moral values as when he said, I mean moral values which are valid and binding whether anybody believes in them or not. Yeah, and actually... This answers that issue that atheists will say, oh, there they go, those Christians again, saying we can't be good without God. But we're not saying you can't be good without God. We're not saying that there are no morals without God. We're saying that there are no objective morals, morals that are outside of yourself. And William Lane Craig says, you know, whether you believe in them or not, but I think it's better to put it whether you like them or not. You have to obey them, even if you don't like them, if they're objective. But from an atheistic viewpoint, it doesn't seem that this is necessary. There are no, there truly are no obje- objective moral values. Whatever moral values might ha- you might have are ones that you like. After all, if you don't like them, then get rid of them. Of course, then in what sense are they objective? They're not objective. They're just purely subjective because they're ones you like. And then you probably end up with 7 billion definitions of uh, what objective moral values are Well, for each person well, they, on the earth. See, the, the problem comes in when they try to claim that their subjective moral values are objective. Right, and right. That's where the problem comes in. But, you know, objective moral values has a real definite definition. Right. And they, that's incompatible with atheism. And that was well put about the objective versus the subjective part. Because we're claiming objective, it applies all the time, everywhere, versus subjective moral values could be defined as they don't apply everywhere when they're mainly defined by someone who is in power or some group who is in power over us. Thus, an illustration would be killing your neighbor here is wrong, killing your neighbor to get his stuff. But over there... Killing your neighbor is not only okay, but it's expected. And I have personally seen places where that was viewed that way. And I always appreciated that I got out of there as quick as possible. Oh, wow. Well, can you be more specific on that? Because that sounds like a scary place to be. Yeah, let us know which places we're not, we don't want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, I have to confess that the places in many of my travels in the Air Force, which were unsafe then, are safe now, and vice versa. Oh, gotcha. Um, some places the map has been withdrawn so many times, I can't remember where I've been. So it changes <laughs> from time to time. Right. So, <laughs> the dangerous places. So uh, naturalism would attempt to disprove God by accusing God of allowing evil to happen. But if you're going to accuse God of allowing evil to happen then you have to assume that there's an ultimate standard of right and wrong, that objective moral value that applies everywhere, at all time, all people that we're going to judge God by. Or, in other words, like if we put God up on 
a stand in a legal proceeding and we point a finger at him and accuse him of evil that everyone everywhere just knows is wrong. And I've heard that many times. Well, everyone just knows this is wrong. Mm -hmm. We don't need God to tell us. <laughs> However, couldn't God simply at that point point from where he was to over there and say, well, it's not wrong over there. And incidentally, I'd like to have the trial moved over there, please. <laughs> so we could see that if there's no ultimate right and wrong because there's no God, then how can you accuse God of violating the ultimate standard that you say don't exist? That's the ultimate circular argument you're doing here. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, uh, I have a little diagram that I did. It just shows how that circular argument doesn't reach all the way around. But in answer to what you were saying earlier about we can have objective without God, there's actually something called the atheistic moral realism. And this view says that objective moral values do exist, but not only are they not derived from God, but they're also not derived from human evolution nor human opinion. In other words, they just are. They're objective moral values that just are, and we don't need anything outside them to say that they exist. Oh, that's interesting. So this is like um, just saying that the laws of gravity exist. So they're saying that objective moral values just ex exist as an inherent part of the, the universe? Yes, I think that would be very close to it. Um, well, that's but, really uh, avoiding the question, isn't Dr. it? Craig, I'm sorry, Kirk, did you have you interjecting something? Yeah, isn't that just kind of another way of avoiding the question by saying, well, they just are and we don't know why? Yeah, exactly. They don't want to tack on the we don't know why. You can say that about anything, and that's the end of the argument. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And they do that a lot. They'll say things are just a brute force. Uh, you know, it's just a brute fact, I mean, you know, and so get used to it kind right. of thing. Suck it up. Use the word <laughs> brute there. So to me, that goes back to subjectism, where you're saying some entity is enforcing their will upon you without it being objectively morally based. And that, in essence, is oppression. But Dr. Craig says that this atheistic moral realism, that objective moral values just exist without God, uh, he calls it incomprehensible, an example of trying to have your cake and eat it too. Because <laughs> his, and his explanation is, the existence of justice rests squarely on the back of personhood, not abstraction. Because when you appeal to justice, you don't appeal to nothing. You don't appeal to an abstraction. You're usually appealing to a person either to agree with you or to agree with you and to enforce it. So it's that personhood that to me would make this atheistic moral realism undefensible. In fact, in Christianity, well as in some other religions, we assert that objective moral values are discovered, not invented, and if I might and not voted upon. So as an example, then, if you're saying that justice says that I have a duty to do something, like I have a duty to help the poor. Now, so an atheist can't just say, well, there simply exists this duty to help others, because duty implies to someone, right? I have, I have a duty to God to help others. 
right? Is that what you're saying? That's that it's person oriented. That that morals to... are essentially come from a moral law giver. They have this innate as if they come from a person, not as if they are just exist by themselves. They have to come from some authority somewhere. Right. Otherwise, why ought you to obey them? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I remember my time in the Air Force. We had the word duty and honor and wearing your hat all the time. Those things were <laughs> taught very strongly. But see, I had a duty to others, but that duty was explained to me and enforced by others. So it's like both sides. But moving along to uh, questions that theism must answer about the existence of God and evil, because we're going back to that snarling tiger. Before we jump into that, let me just remind people, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking with Kevin Harold about the problem of suffering and the answers that different viewpoints give to why there's suffering in the world and does this mean there is no God? So Kevin, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. You were you were talking about how the questions that might be brought opposed against Christianity. We're back yes. to the snarling tiger. Yeah. And these are very important questions and we want to get this is probably the most important part of the presentation it is to me. Uh, because if we say pantheism or naturalism doesn't come up with adequate answers, we're not going to sit back and close the end of the show and say, well, that means that Christianity is true. No, my one of my main points is that Christianity is the best answer because it addresses those three aspects and the intellectual and the emotional. And I think we'll work through this, and I think we'll see how that works. But first question being, and I'm sure people will recognize this, how can an all-powerful and caring God allow suffering to happen to us? Mm. Yeah, so, that's that whole idea of, you know, aren't we God's pets? You know, why doesn't he take care of us? Mm, that's an interesting illustration, because if you ever watched my wife train my dog, uh, favoritism is not a factor. <laughs> I don't like being trained by her. <laughs> so, Answer, how can an all-powerful and caring God allow suffering to happen? I think the answer here is where the skeptic incorrectly assumes that the term omnipotent, in other words, that God is all-powerful, means that God can do anything. But not even God can do mutually exclusive things. Mutually exclusive things. Are you saying that God can't do absolutely everything? Well, Example, he can't do mutually exclusive things. Can't make a square circle. Right, and that, that could lead down a rabbit trail right there. <laughs> but if we talk about the freedom of the person, in that if that freedom is so engineered and so reined in that only good will result, but yet at the same time insist that the person is free, I think that's a contradictory assertion. Because if love is coerced, so that nothing else but love can result. Is that truly love? Or as one person said, wouldn't that make love meaningless? I think uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, addresses a lot of this. And one of the things he said, that God's omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible 
not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. So you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combination of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because you stick on the prefix, God can. That was a little bit of paraphrasing, but C.S. Lewis reinforcing the idea that God can't do absolutely everything, for example, we're saying this mutually exclusive thing. Well, what exactly is the mutually exclusive thing? Because isn't the atheist only saying there is suffering in the world, God could do something about the suffering in the world, but he doesn't. Therefore, it's likely that or probable that he doesn't exist. Because if he did do some, if he could do something, if he could end suffering, then he would. So is that is that yes. what you're saying is mutually exclusive? So what's mutually exclusive about but, it? But he's also talking about that old saw about, you know, can God make a rock that's too big for him to pick up? I mean, and the answer is no, because that's a nonsense question, and God can't do nonsense. So is the answer that God cannot do anything about suffering? No, that that is certainly not what I'm saying, but it this question, this first question has mainly to do with the sense of God's all-powerfulness, but yet his caringness. And I think uh, explained, uh, Michael Ramstead uh, brought up a good point about this, because if man truly does have the freedom to choose love or choose evil, then will not evil sometimes result because of that freedom to choose, especially since we in Christianity say we have a sin nature. Or he put it a little differently. He says, if you want to create a loving world, which God obviously did, you must also create a world in which choices can be exercised. And in such a world, there is also the possibility for individuals to choose a course of action that is not loving. So the mutually exclusive thing, then, is a world in which free will exists and in which there is no such thing as evil. Those are the, those are the mutually exclusive things. If you're going to have free will, then you are going to have evil of some form. Or that there's at least correct. the possibility of evil there. Right, and so therefore, once you have the possibility of evil, therefore eventually you will have evil. Like, mm-hmm. eventually Adam and Eve fall. Right, and which leads into the next question. Well done, guys. Possibility of evil. The next one would be, where did pain and suffering come from in the first place? So we know that sometimes there's things like floods and earthquakes that are not the result of human decisions per se. And the objector would point to the very beginning and ask how, if God supposedly made everything good, like it says in Genesis 1.31, then how could evil happen at all. They would say, well, surely he's the author of evil, the originator of evil. But James 1, 13 and 14 says otherwise. And I think you just hit on a good way to think about this is that while God did not create evil, he did create the potential for evil when he ordered man not to eat of the tree. For as I understand it, a command has an implicit suggestion that you can obey it or disobey it. So the potential to disobey exists, and thus we could say that is where evil came from, or a better way to say where evil was exercised. So in a sense, it's like God creating a radioactive 
element that has the potential to decay and given enough time it probably will decay. So if, if Adam and Eve were given enough choices over a long enough period of time, eventually they're going to make the wrong choice simply because they are free and had the ability to do it. This is kind of reminding me when parents try to discipline their children and they say, I don't want you to do such and such. When they say that to their children, they intend for them to obey it. But the very fact that they're saying that to them creates the possibility that they'll choose not to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They may choose not to do it just because you told them. In other words, they're opening the possibility of disobedience by saying, I want you to do this. <laughs> right. Or some kids are so oblivious, they may not have even thought that they could get away with doing something. But once you tell them not to do it, they go, oh, I never thought of that. Guess what I'm going to do now? <laughs> well, now I'm laughing because I'm being a parent myself. <laughs> but this point of free will leads to the important and thought-provoking concept here is that one way to look at that evil is a perversion or mutation of the good. So God created everything good, but because of the allowing free will, evil will come about it. Uh, Professor Douglas Guyvin of Talbert uh, put together, carrying on this thought, uh, he said, basically, I'll just read it, evil is a distortion from the way things ought to be. But there can't be a distortion from the way things ought to be unless there is a way things ought to be. And there can't be a way things ought to be unless there's a design plan that says that this is the way things ought to be. And there can't be a design plan that says this is the way things ought to be unless there's a designer who put forth the design. Oh, so that, that gets back to our atheistic um, objective morals are just a brute fact of the universe. Well, if you're going to say that, then you say that's that's the way things ought to be, and there can't be a way things ought to be unless there's a plan, which says that's the way things ought to be, and if there's such a plan, there must be a planner, a designer. You, it's like you just can't get away from the person aspect of this right. discussion. I'm moving along quickly because I want to make sure we address the question of Hitler and Christianity. The third question that Christianity must answer when dealing with God and the existence of evil is, why doesn't God simply take away our suffering? Or, to be honest, a lot of times it's asked, why God doesn't take away my suffering? Mm. But the answer would be, if God is the master designer, as we talked about, then that would imply that there's a purposefulness to his ways. So, if there's a purposefulness to it, that helps us to understand sometimes why pain exists in our life, evil exists in our life, and why sometimes it is removed and not removed. And I'm not going to be insulting and try and get into the nuts and bolts and explain every possible situation to try and explain your pain. But I think the principle is important that there is a benefit to it. What are the benefits? Real quickly, one of them C.S. Lewis talks about is one possible benefit of pain in our life is it gets our attention when sometimes we wouldn't have gave God a second thought because he's quoted as saying, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Hmm. Another benefit uh, may be not so much direct, but an indirect or a secondary worthfulness to it. I might mutilate that word. 
And we saw this in Genesis, where Joseph basically said, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Hmm. So my main point, getting to my main point here about suffering has meaningfulness, not that every single aspect of suffering has a meaning and we're to rack our heads, try to always figure it out. But suffering should bring, and I say this very delicately, some measure of joy when we focus not upon ourselves, but the possibility that it has some meaning in our life. And the important point, the main, main point, is that when we think about all of this, in light of the idea that God works in a meaningful way when we suffer, the main conclusion of this entire presentation should be that Christ addresses both the emotional part of our suffering and the intellectual. And I want to stress the emotional part because Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Christ went to the cross, suffered injustice and pain, and in doing so, he can understand what we go through when we feel like we're enduring pain as just as excruciating. Right. So he humbled himself so that when we're going through things, we can know that God knows what we're going through. He really knows it because he's experienced that kind of pain and suffering, too. And that, that's really an amazing thing to, to think that uh, God would allow himself to be part of the suffering and take it upon himself for us. That's just truly amazing. I think that personally, uh, when you endure great suffering like that, there comes a point where it's not so much the question of why anymore, but who. In the sense, my own life, what really became pivotal when I kept thinking that the Word of God says that he will never leave me nor forsake me, even in the darkest hour of my life. So it's basically three questions, three things that I think shows that Christianity best explains the question of God and the existence of evil. And once again, I don't want to make light of what you may be going through at the moment, but I want to try bring in the intellectual and the emotional aspect. Mm, that's so, one of the benefits of the Christian answer. Right. Much right. more satisfying than any of the others. More satisfying, more helpful, I think, too. Certainly not, not I can't say I've, you know, got it all figured out exactly, but have gone a long way to understanding things. And like speaking of understanding things in the few minutes we have left, I think it's important to address the subject. And I know, Keith, this is uh, something that you really are uh, interested in, is that Christianity and Third Reich, you know, the accusation that Hitler did what he did because he was a Christian and thus the great suffering came as a result and laid at the feet of Christianity's door. Right, yeah, you, you sometimes hear that. Uh, not often, because most atheists are a little bit more intellectually knowledgeable than that, but sometimes you come across some ill-informed ones uh, who do try to lay that at the feet of Christianity. And, so. and not always, I don't want to figure out what the word, the word's not unjust, but, but not, not understandable. If your family suffered greatly, I mean, you 
you are looking to understand something. But I think there's a whole thing, and we had an excellent uh, presentation this morning. And if you email evidenceforfaith.com, I know Keith would be glad to give you that source. But in the last few seconds remaining, the most pointed thing I've read about this is a quote from Adolf Hitler in 1933, where he said, one is either a Christian or a German in 1933. You can't be both. One must choose. He was saying one must choose to be a Christian or a German. So you could go into other things, but I think that pointed where he stood and what he thought of Christianity. Right. Wonderful. Mm. Well, Kevin Harold, thank you for being a guest on the show. Once again, we appreciate you being here. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was good!